Welcome to A Moment of Bach, where we take our favorite moments from the composer's vast musical output, just a minute's worth or even a few seconds, and show you why we think they are remarkable. We are your hosts, Alex and Christian Giebert. And today's moment is from the Christe Eleison of the Mass in B minor. time for something completely different from last week. Musical settings of the Mass text begin with the Kyrie, Lord have mercy. And that section is very short, and it is in Greek, unlike the rest of the text, which is in Latin. And composers usually treat this first section as the first movement of music, and it goes Kyrie eleison, Christe eleison, Kyrie eleison. I'll play a little example of a Renaissance, a late Renaissance, Kyrie and Christe and Kyrie for this purpose. Last week we talked about the first Kyrie. Past composers would put all three of those lines of text into the same section, the same large section of music, and divide them. There's a clear division into three, you know, there's sort of a clear ABA division of the text. And we often hear an opening Kyrie, and then a a pause to breathe, and then a new section with a different, maybe a different vocal texture for the Christe, and then another Kyrie at the end that's more conclusive. Some composers might repeat the music of the first Kyrie for the second one. But often in the Renaissance, they took the opportunity to write three different phrases of music. Makes a lot of sense to compose it that way. And that's the first section of the Mass Ordinary. Bach does something a lot more spread out, though, in his B minor mass. He takes his time with the first Kyrie, with that whole grand opening. Yeah, 11 minutes in this recording. Yeah, it's the longest part of the mass in B minor. It's the longest single section, and it's a little intimidating if you go to a performance of the mass in B minor. You see how long the text is. You see that he took 11 minutes to set the first two (laughs) words. But it's, of course, it's not all like that. He gets through a lot of the other stuff faster. But he really wants to make an impression on on that first Kyrie. But the thing that's so remarkable about, about Bach's setting of the Kyrie section of the Mass is that he divides it into three parts that are not only contrasting in just sound, but also complete musical style different. Like, one of them is old, one of them is new. The uh, opening Kyrie and the second Kyrie are an old contrapuntal style. 
and in the middle is this like fresh new Italian opera duet for the Criste Eleison. Yeah. It's like as far as far south as he could have gone for um, for the Criste. It's completely different, and it just goes to show you that one of the things that, that we always return to with a Mass in B minor is its variety. This was very much on purpose. Bach knew what he was doing. It was not a unified vision of style, the Mass in B minor. It was a sampling of various styles on purpose. Right, and not only just, not only just for the sake of variety, but in service of the text, as we always say, I believe it makes sense for Bach to set a sort of lighter fluffier, um, definitely more happy in terms of the major key, and the more modern style for the Christe eleison, because it is, like you said, sandwiched in between the Lord have mercies, the Kyrie ones, and it makes sense biblically if you think about that, which is like, Lord, we're talking about God the Father, specifically, and then Christ, which is the Redeemer, you know, in the theology of it, the Lord does love everybody and desires the salvation of everyone, but also judges everyone harshly for their sins and that's why Christ is needed to redeem those sins. So the, the Christ part of it, it makes sense that the Christ part of it's a little more like upbeat and happy and that the Lord part, the part about God the Father, is a little bit more serious. Yeah, it's a different kind of prayer maybe. And the texture, the musical texture is, is quite different too. The Kyrie's are contrapuntal and there are four or five parts in those that are always moving against each other. The Christe is set as a duet between two sopranos here, and they're almost always singing together. And sometimes they have a little bit of counterpoint off of each other, but a lot of the time they're just singing in harmony, which is very simple and beautiful. And it's that it's the particular relationship between their their two notes when they sing in parallel harmony that I'm interested in talking about today, leading to our smaller moment for today. But first, let's hear how the Christe begins. Just like a lot of Bach arias, it starts with an instrumental obligato, that is a part written for instruments, instrument solo or instruments together. In this case, all of the violins playing together, a single line that begins the aria. Right from the start, we've got this nice active violin line against a, a jumpy bass line that's very pleasing and also a little bit curious and uh, up and down, kind of very active, but also very questioning or searching, maybe. One of the first notes we hear is one that is outside of our key, which is interesting and will be explored many times in the uh, in the aria. When these two sopranos enter, I'd like to describe the relationship between the notes that they're singing because in a way it's it's a little bit simple. Alex, back in the first season of this podcast, we talked a little bit about musical intervals when we talked about one of the movements of the Goldberg variations because that movement had two voices in it that were arranged as a canon at the sixth. And to understand what that meant, we had to l- talk a little bit about 
musical intervals. Right. But this is this is the perfect time to talk about the intervals because we have this duet of sopranos who are always often singing together. And there are very simple rules about which intervals they're allowed to sing together in parallel and which they are not. Right. And specifically like to move in parallel, which they can move in parallel together and which they cannot. Exactly. So when two voices have two different notes, the distance between them is is what we're calling a musical interval. Some musical intervals are extremely stable and even hollow and open. That would be like the octave. It sounds very good for two singers to sing that interval together, although they have to be very precise to make it, because both notes are essentially the same version of each other, lower and higher. But they can't move like that. The voices can't move like that unless it's for the intended effect of everyone sounding like they're singing together because it just they're singing the same notes but higher and lower. And for that reason, Bach will never write music this way with two independent lines that are supposed to be independent, like two singers in a duet. Mm. He'll mm-hmm. never do that because in the older style of his time, it was all about linear independence of, of parts, instrumental or vocal. So he wouldn't let them move that way because they would sound too much like they would be the same. The perfect fifth is another interval that sounds quite nice and hollow, but again, you wouldn't move two parts in parallel using perfect fifths. And the reason is because it's almost too stable. It's such a stable interval that it weakens the independence of those voices when they move together. So it doesn't work in this musical style. And then there are other intervals which are on the other extreme are way too clashy and strange. And we call those dissonant. And those are like the seconds and sevenths. Those intervals are allowed, but they have to be resolved. Really have to be set up and resolved in a, in a way that they become nice again. Right. So that just leaves us with the in-between, and that's what we have to talk about when we talk about parallel intervals in a duet like this. What's left is the beautiful intervals, the ones that sound sweet and nice, and those are the thirds and the sixths. These two singers singing together in parallel motion are singing in thirds and sixths. By the way, thirds and sixths are related. They are merely the reverse of each other. They are the inverse of each other, I guess you should say. A third and a sixth are backwards versions of one another in that if you take a third and you move the bottom note up an octave, you have a sixth. Or if you take the top note down an octave, you have a sixth. So you have an F sharp and an A. In whatever arrangement you have that F sharp and that A together, it will be a third or a sixth, depending on which one's on the top. Thirds and sixths sound great together as two voices move continually in parallel. But it's more than that. It's not just that they sound the best when they move together. It's that they are basically the only intervals that you're allowed to use when two voices move together. This is what I always found fascinating about counterpoint. When two voices move together exactly in parallel, with the same interval. It has to be thirds and sixths. There are tiny exceptions when a third voice is is allowed that are more complicated, but yeah. mostly it has to be. Yeah, fourths are allowed sometimes, but it's a little it's it's a lot pickier. Fourths are allowed sometimes, especially when there's a th- another voice going on that's another that's a third exactly. to one of them. Quick clarification here for musicians who fairly sure that octaves happen a lot, parallel octaves, they do, but it's an orchestrational reason, right? It's like a double bass playing the same thing as a cello. They're playing in octaves, but that's to reinforce the bottom end. 
maybe in later orchestral music, the flute and the violin and the piccolo or something, everyone's all playing one big melody and a bunch of octaves. That's just a thickening or coloring of a texture. What we're talking about here is different. We're talking about independent parts that are supposed to be different. They will not move in parallel octaves for just a few notes or or really at all. If they do, if an entire musical line is like copy-pasted into another part at an octave or together like in unison, we call it, then then you can assume that was on purpose because it was meant to double and thicken up maybe an orchestral color. Right. But you, critically, what you're talking about, Christian, is as voices moving in parallel. So they're singing the same rhythm. That's also part of it, or at least something really similar. Yeah. The simplest way to say it is they're singing in harmony together. It sounds like one of them maybe has the melody and the other one has a lower harmony or vice versa. What's cool about this particular movement of the Mass in B minor as an example for this is that when those voices come in, those two sopranos, they're very clearly singing the same rhythm and and the same words at the same time. And you can hear the interval of the third on everything they sing very clearly. Whereas at the beginning of the movement with the instruments, those two lines are just completely separate. They're not in harmony. They're doing different things. They just follow. They still have to follow those rules, but they aren't. They're all. They're all over the place. You know, there's the violin line, which is this lovely melody that you get at the beginning, and then there's the bass, the continuo. Right, the bass. It's worth pointing out here to the listener that the bass line is is another voice. Whenever we say like independent line or independent voice in Baroque music, we mean an independent single line that is intended to work with the intervals of another line. If it sounds overwhelming to you to understand the weight of the fact that every musical line in Baroque music has to be, has to follow these counterpoint rules intervallically where every pair of notes has to follow these rules. And then when there's three or four or five, then, you know, multiply that. Well, that is overwhelming, uh, but, but it is very genuinely what they had to learn how to write this music. It's a different way than we write music now with chords. Yeah. It's just how they had to learn how to do it, it was a technical skill right. it's, a, it's a craft composition was a craft i mean there's still an element of craft to writing a good say pop song or something today in fact there's a lot of it a lot of it has to do with production but a lot of it does have to do with the songwriting and the melody and the melodic hooks and the the way you go from chord to chord and what sounds satisfying and what doesn't so the craft of the day um, they wouldn't have, we've talked about this before, we call it rules all the time. They are rules, but also they wouldn't have thought of it as limiting because the box they were working in or the um, the, the narrow, what seems to us narrow confines of those of those so-called rules that they were working in actually allowed them a lot of freedom within that to create a bunch of different setups and resolutions, you know, um, tensions and resolutions and things that the music could do, things that would sustain the interest of the music while keeping within the rules. Yeah, the structure gave, gave them a lot of artistic freedom in a way that will lead us to the moment today because dissonant intervals are beautiful. Now, when we're saying they can't, two voices can't move in parallel motion with dissonant intervals, it's because that particular type of motion is not beautiful arguably. Um, But what is beautiful is setting a really crunchy dissonance up and then having it happen strongly and emotionally and then relaxing and releasing it afterwards Mm. and having rules for that 
makes it more satisfying, arguably. And just just to show you how how the thirds and sixths are working at the beginning here when the two sopranos begin, they start in thirds. And then near the end of this line, they're in sixths a little bit. So sometimes they're in thirds and sometimes they're in sixths. But the moment that I'd like to look at is when they wind up on a second. And this happens right near the end for some extra tension, right near the end of the first section of music when they're about to finish the first big chunk of vocal music. And Bach made it work in such a way that they land, for a few beats long, they land on an interval of a second to each other. The second soprano gets there first, and then the first soprano leaps way down, and then they've got this interval of a crunchy second. Two notes right next to each other. Bach makes it work harmonically in terms of a chord that has those two notes in it. It's very slick. Mm. That tension makes the resolution and final end of this section a little bit more satisfying, I think. Yeah, so Christian, the notes you're referring to are A and B. The second soprano is sitting on an A, the first soprano lands on a B, and they're there for two beats. Actually, two beats and change, right? Mm -hmm. And then they resolve. They'd spend the next measure doing a little wind down into a cadence to resolve into A. And so all that needs to happen there really is that the lower note, the A, needs to go down to a G sharp to set up a dominant chord. And he does that, albeit a little more complicated than what I just said, to wind into the cadence. But that's what he gives us. And so that is completely within the so-called rules. Yeah. And when they do settle down into the final cadence there, a delightfully perfect ending occurs where they both wind up from different sides approaching a single unison note, which is A, which is the do or the tonic of the key we're now in. And this happens essentially from one of the sopranos being a note higher and the other being a note lower, and then going up and going down so that the third becomes unison. It converges. Right. And this actually, what's what's great about this is that we talked about how fresh and new this operatic sounding duet was and how Bach was trying to appeal to the Italian style and show, you know, put together this mass in B minor to show how diverse his style was. Mm -hmm. But then this cadence, the way these two voices converge at the end, this is like the most ancient thing about about this music, I think, I think of everything because the simple way that two linear voices must begin and end and converge into this perfect consonance at the end here, that's, that's like a Renaissance concept. That's hundreds of years old. Yeah. So then, although I believe that my moment of Bach for the day is, is right there, it has a shadow version of itself. So each interval has an opposite. Each interval has an inverse. Mm. The third and the sixth are opposites that we've already discussed. But all of the other intervals that you can find on the piano between nothing and an octave, they all have their own opposites as well. The fifth and the fourth are opposites. They actually have different rules in Western music, but that's for another time. Mm. The second and the seventh are opposites. So a second is a crunchy dissonance of two notes that are really close to each other. A seventh is a crunchy dissonance of the same type of relationship between those two notes except for now they're not as close and they have to move the opposite direction to resolve from each other 
but it's the same thing. One of them is just in a different octave. And Bach, in his always mind-bending and clever way, reversed it for us. And when the piece ends, I should say when the singers end, there's still a final violin ending. When the singers end, we get this again, but it's transposed back into the original key for a nice bit of final satisfying resolution. But this time the voices are opposite in their jobs and they wind up not on a second this time uh, when this passage of music gets done again in this new key, Mm. but they wind up on a seventh. And also, since the parts are inverted now, they previously converged down to a unison at a cadence. And now, at a sort of like sub-cadence before the very last one, they do the same thing except the opposite. They diverge out into an octave. Did you notice that, Alex, at bar 74, beat 3? Now the second soprano moves down to the lower uh, do. First soprano up to the higher do. Mm -hmm. And... We described earlier that the most ancient way to end something on a perfect unison consonance would be to one voice to approach it from a step above and then the other from a step below, turning a third into a unison. Right. And this is just merely the opposite, the inverted version. It's the, it's the inverse. I, I yeah. love this, this talk of inverse because everything in music has it. And it, it's it's really, I mean, it's not even just Western classical music. I mean, I'm reminded of um, specifically like Indian traditional music has this all over the place. Hmm. You don't know about this, Christian? Like a lot of Indian traditional music that's based on ragas, which are like um, kind of like scales or modes, not exactly, kind of like a framework to in which to improvise. And it's a little closer to actually like medieval maybe like medieval hexachords even than um, than modes, but it's a basically a framework for for improvisation in that style. But they all have, there's this complex web of basically opposites in the, all the ragas. And there's shadow versions of each one, kind of, is one way of thinking of it, or mm. inverse versions of each one. And you can find that in any art form, but the, I think the musical ones are particularly striking because sometimes they, sometimes they allow you to do the same thing you wanted to do, like vibe-wise in the piece like this for Bach, like it still comes to that same that same cadence with the same harmony, like the structure of it is the same, but you get to approach it from the opposite direction. And then sometimes these inverse strategies that you can use to create something, like they make you, they make it seem completely different, but you're actually doing the same thing. So as a composer, it gives you tons of options. It's really exciting. Yeah, it also matches with the flipping of, of harmony. throughout a piece of music from a first kyria to a second back to a first. Yeah. This is a thing that, that just gives this music such elegance. And you know what? Uh, as, as a listener, if you're thinking like, I don't notice any of this. Well, it is actually kind of intended to be subconscious. It's supposed to be so elegant and proportional that maybe you might not notice it consciously. So the piece begins in a primary key area that we have to end in the key of D. We'll have to end there later to make things sound finished at the bigger 
you know, at the larger scale. And then, as we've mentioned in a, pre- in a recent podcast episode, there's a little bit of recursion in the fact that each smaller section has its own internal harmonic motion, but there's a bigger second section that is in a secondary key of A major. It ended, it had that strange dissonance in the two voices that was a second, they were a second apart, and then they converged into an octave. Now, we finally return to the primary key area with the inverse of that music, but now in our home key again from the introduction, giving us that really nice dramatic return. Um, Whether or not it's fully conscious in our minds, it does happen to us, you know, as the listener. And now that second has become a seventh, and Bach quickly gives us the inverted uh, unison, which is now an octave, But then he tags on another extension. Just to hit home the point that we are really finishing up. We drop off of that weird C natural like we had at the very beginning, but then we arrive actually at a unison low note that sounds very final between these two sopranos. before we finally get the, almost like a warm embrace, we get that last violin line one more time, just like it was at the beginning. For a really nice proportional balance so that it begins just like it ends. It's just, it's so deliberately constructed. You know, sometimes sometimes it's easy to forget. He, he had to write so much music. Sometimes you think like, oh, well, he just started putting notes down. He did that. But he also, this was such an ingrained technical skill, the intervallic part writing, but also the form. So the two things we've discussed today, at the smallest and largest scales, we've discussed formal aspects of this music. But that's all part of the technique that he brought when he came to write this stuff down. Even when it was not an old style, like this is new. This is operatic type of music. And um, he put a lot of work into making sure it was proportionally good as well. Right. And the structures exist to... I mean, I think we can't can't lose sight of the fact that when you're composing, it's not not just about the details. It's about what you're trying to do with the music and the the effect that it's intended to have on the listener. And I know that, that Bach... What was such a master at this because he he was so good at the little details, but also the emotional effect of it is just stunning. Also, I mean, it's just it's both there. And I think to your point about it being subconscious, Christian, some of these structures they just allow for that. You know, the, the way that the ABA form works or whatever, and the way that the rules are for the intervals and all these things, they they allow for that. Like I was saying before, the framework of that allows for it all to flourish. All the artistic, emotional, like intentional effect on the listener to to work the way the composer wants. But but also, like like you said, Christian, it's, it's deliberate for Bach, but it's also ingrained. You use both of those words. And I think sometimes it's so, he's, he's just so good at it that he his compositional process 
allowed him to put some of the detail work on the subconscious level so that he could actually just like write music for the sake of doing the point which was like to really convey the text right or to just be to be beautiful to have an emotional response to the listener all these things are able to work together because of this framework because of this western classical rules the the music theory stuff that music theory students hate because it's so it's so complicated and math like but all that structure is is there for the artistic purpose yeah there's arguably some problematic aspects of uh, western music theory philosophically speaking because it is reliant upon very strict hierarchy like some things are allowed some things aren't some things are more stable than others and stuff like that some intervals are more stable than others you know some rules are more strict than others and some chords are more final than others intervals etc but i think you that's the only way that's the only way it could be and there have been various periods of music history especially more recently in the last 100 to 150 years that have tried to stretch that or even destroy it and a lot of it has been extremely successful but i think it's just I think it's just impossible to deny how powerful it was when it when it was happening when it was in its full force you know in the in these uh, few hundreds of years that it really flourished and now here is christian's moment from the christi eleison where the sopranos sing in an interval of a second And here is its opposite, with the singers on the interval of a seventh, and coming to a resolution. If this introduction to a musical moment has inspired you to hear the rest of the Christe Eleison, or the rest of the whole Kyrie section, or the rest of the entire Mass in B minor, then please check the link in the episode description to see that performance conducted by Jos van Veldhoven of the Netherlands Bach Society. Do you want to hear our new episodes as we release them? Find us on your podcast app and hit subscribe. Also, if you give us a rate and a review on iTunes, that helps us out a lot because it helps other people to find the podcast. Okay, Alex, what comes after Christe LA Zone? Well, like you mentioned before, Christian, another Curie movement. Bach wrote Curie, then Christe, then Curie, all separate movements. And for that third one, the Curie, he did not just repeat the first one, but wrote a whole new thing. And so that is what we will be looking at next week, Kyrie Eleison number two. Until next time, enjoy those moments. <laughs>